So I came across a story about a famous preacher, some of you I'm sure have heard of him, named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Uh, He pastored a church in Philadelphia from 1927 until his death in 1960. And that church uh, grew and and just became a large, influential ministry in that city. And and Barnhouse, uh, he was innovative. He was one of the first preachers to take advantage of that newfangled technology called the radio and uh, did radio ministry on there. He loved in-depth Bible study. In fact, uh, he started... Uh, on his radio program, and uh, just a very in-depth study of the book of Romans in 1949, and he was still in Romans when he died in 1960, so uh, really in-depth guy. But anyways, uh, he attended uh, Princeton uh, Seminary, uh, back when Princeton Seminary uh, still believed in the inspiration of the scripture and, and, uh, and uh, biblical authority. And about 12 years after he graduated, he was invited back to preach in a chapel service. And when he started preaching, he noticed that his Hebrew uh, professor was sitting right near the front. And so when he was done, he went down to greet him. And uh, the professor, uh, Dr. Wilson, said to him, well, if you come back again, I'm I'm not going to come here to preach because I only come once. But I'm glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see whether they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be like. And uh, Barnhouse had not heard those terms before, so he's a little bit confused. He asked Dr. Wilson to explain, and he said, well, some men have a little god, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of the scriptures and their preservation or transmission to us. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. You have a great God, and he will bless your ministry. You are a big godder. And Dr. Barnhouse, uh, or Dr. Wilson was right about Barnhouse. He, he did have uh, a great God and, and did have a strong and highly impactful ministry, one that even carries on today through his books. But of course, the, the real question is not about him, but about us. What about you? Are you a little godder or a big godder? I encourage you to grab your Bibles and open up to... Uh, Joshua chapter 10 as we continue the study and building a battle ready faith and um, uh, we're going to be looking at a big chunk of uh, scripture this morning Uh, chapter 10 is a long chapter but I'm going to start by just reading one verse as we prepare our hearts for what God wants to say to us here chapter 10 Joshua verse 14 says there was no day like that before it or after it When the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Father God, we're just so thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning. We're thankful, God, that you are here, that you are working in our hearts, in our midst. And even right now, God, we just give you permission to freely work in our hearts and minds in the way that you will, to meet us each at our point of need. God, strengthen and encourage us today from having been together here. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
All right, so last week we saw that Joshua and the, and the leadership of Israel made a very poor decision, all because they failed to seek God uh, and the counsel of God in what they were doing. And they ended up making a treaty with the Gibeonites, something God had strictly forbidden because they were residents within the land of Canaan. And that provided a bad example for us, uh, definitely something that we want to avoid uh, doing in our own lives. Or if you want to flip it around and look at it positively, it was a good reminder for us that in all things, we need to seek God, His counsel, and His wisdom as we make choices because the reality is we do have an enemy out there who is bent on bringing destruction and chaos into our lives and His main tool for doing that is deception. And so we as Christians cannot fall into the trap of, you know, just trusting our eyes and what we see or our reason and logic. Jesus himself warned us against this, especially in regards uh, to uh, the end times. In Matthew 24, 24, he said, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So did you catch that? I mean, these false religious leaders coming in the name of God, coming in the name of Jesus Christ, are going to be able to do great signs and wonders. It didn't say they'll pretend to. It didn't say that they'll try to, try to fake it or try to make it happen. It says they'll do them. How many times have you heard someone say, oh, I know that person must be from God because you should see the things he does or she does. Well, guess what? Seeing what they do is not real proof. Just as we noticed last week, when Joshua saw all the physical evidence that these Gibeonites were indeed from this far distant country, but it turned out to be nothing but a fabricated lie. For true wisdom, we must always, always rely on God. He's the only one who knows the hearts of other people. And he is the one who knows all of the facts that we aren't privy to. So we have to turn to God. Now, fortunately, because God is a great God of forgiveness and, and mercy and grace, he will restore us even after times when we blow it and fail, uh, as he did with Joshua. Joshua was still God's man to lead the Israelites in their conquest of the promised land. However, now there were some consequences that were going to affect Joshua and Israel. You see, it turns out that the rest of the kings of Canaan weren't particularly thrilled with the idea that the Gibeonites had now made a treaty with Israel. And these people saw them as traitors. So look at how uh, chapter 10 starts off. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, he feared now that these Gibeonites, who had a strong force in and of themselves, would now join 
in, in cahoots with Israel. Now, he didn't know Israel wouldn't allow that. He didn't know that. He just knew there'd been this treaty uh, made, and, and he was afraid. Now, with that combined army, oh, man, we're going to really be in trouble. By the way, just an interesting uh, point of trivia for you here, in case like you're ever on Jeopardy and this comes up and you need to know it. This is the very first mention of the city of Jerusalem in the Bible. And here, Joshua 10, just, just so you know. it. So, so the king of Jerusalem... He is scared of Israel, and he's mad at the Gibeonites. So he decides he's going to attack the traitors. But, you know, we just read that Gibeonites had a strong army and valiant warriors, so this Adonai Zedek uh, goes about doing this by recruiting four other nearby kings uh, to join him. And basically, he got the four strongest uh, cities still left in the south of Israel. And he had to do the south of Israel because now with Jericho and Ai and now the Gibeonites uh, farther up in the mountains, they had effectively cut Israel in half between north and south. And so, so he only had the south side to work with. And, uh, and he grabbed uh, Hebron, which is, is uh, west of the Dead Sea up in the mountains, and uh, then got um, uh, Lachish and Eglon, which are down by what is now the Gaza Strip. And Jarmuth, which nobody has any idea where that's at, uh, uh, didn't survive uh, antiquity, but their best guess is it was somewhere um, west of Gibeon near Aijalon or something like that. They don't know. But those four cities uh, got together, their, their kings and their armies, and they set upon Gibeon. And, of course, we assume that Gibeon would be then defending themselves there. We're never actually told that, but that would be the, 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 the main assumption. But what we do find out is that uh, as servants, Gibeon now has servants of Israel, demanded the right of slaves, which was for the master to protect them. So look at verse 6. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Now, all the kings, that's a you know, bit of an exaggeration. But when you're in a panic mode and you're looking for help, you, you do that kind of thing. And, and, and so they sent this word to Joshua. Now, what would you do if you were Joshua at that point? You know what the first thing that entered my mind was? I would send a little message back to the Gibeonites and say, well, tough luck, guys. Uh, I hope you have a good chance against those combined armies. Not, you know. Uh, I, I would be looking at it as an easy way to get out of this dumb mistake that I had made in making a treaty with them, right? I mean, if those kings killed off all the Gibeonites, uh, well, then I don't have to worry about them in the land anymore. They weren't supposed to be there anyways. The only reason they're there is because they tricked me into making this treaty. So why not let somebody else kill them all off? And maybe in the process, since they have some mighty warriors, they'll kill some of the troops of, of those armies, making them weaker and making it easier for me to finish the conquering of the promised land. Hey, this is a win-win situation for me. I'll just let them wipe them out, sit here on the sidelines, resting up, letting the army heal up, and, and we'll be ready to go afterwards. That's, you know, how I think I might have responded. But that's not what Joshua did at all. Verse 7, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. You see, Joshua understood that he had made an oath, a promise to these people, even though he had been tricked into it. 
But this oath he made was in the name of God. And Joshua was bound to keep his oath because it was a matter of integrity for him and integrity before God. See, beyond that, how he responded would reflect upon God himself. Is this the kind of God that would accept going back on your word or not? And Joshua knew the answer was not, so he kept his word. The Gibeonites, by making themselves servants of Israel in this treaty, were supposed to receive the protection of Israel, and Joshua would follow through on that responsibility. I think it's a good challenge and example for us. You know, in describing a righteous man, Psalm 15.4 says, He swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's what God expects and desires out of us as, as His people, His children, is to keep your word. I mean, I can't tell you how many times as a parent I wish I had a do-over in this area. Because sometimes I you know, would make a, a promise, maybe kind of flippantly to the boys, oh, yes, I, I'll do that, I'll do this with you. Maybe something simple like just going out at a specific time to throw the football around. But then the time arrives for that to happen and it's inconvenient and I'm busy on these other things and, and I've got some, you know, logical, compelling reason why it just wouldn't work out for me. And I'll say, well, you know, I'm sorry, we'll get to it later. I'll make it up to you some other time, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is the boys saw me not keeping my word to them. And we, we don't get do-overs in this life. So we better be careful when making a promise, making a vow, and we need to follow through when we do, even if it's to our own hurt. So Joshua accepted that truth and his responsibility toward the Gibeonites. So this battle then would be a consequence of his rash promise to them. But as I said, God is able to redeem even our mistakes. Look at verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. God was, was going to turn this mistake into an opportunity. An opportunity for Joshua to further his campaign and his conquest of the land of Canaan. So God gives him this word of comfort and encouragement. And that's important for us to see because usually it's after a time when we blow it, like Joshua did, that's a prime opportunity for Satan to come to us and discourage us. I mean, I have no, uh, it would be no surprise if Joshua uh, would have been doubting that God even wanted to use him anymore or that God would support him and help him. I mean, Satan could easily plant the thought in his mind that says, oh man, I, I don't really deserve God's approval and aid anymore. I mean, I didn't seek him. I didn't stand by his side when I should have. What makes me think that he would then want to come and, and stand by my side? I blew it. I, I just don't deserve that. Anybody ever have any thoughts like that in your life? And God, He steps into those doubts and those fears and He reassures Joshua. And notice how God does that. 
It's not like he revealed to Joshua some previously unknown truth. It's not like God said, hey, let me show you this brand new thing you never even thought about from me. God did it by reaffirming the promises that he had already given. Verse 8 is simply a repeat of what God had promised Joshua clear back in the very beginning at the start of his, his leadership in chapter 1, verse 5, where he said, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I've been with Moses. I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. See, just because Joshua blew it doesn't mean God goes back on his promises. And that's normally the way God reassures us as well, isn't it? He'll remind us of the promises already given. As you are reading His Word, maybe listening to some good gospel-based song, or perhaps through a a, a well-grounded Christian friend of yours, God will remind you of His promises already given. And in a new and a fresh way, they will take hold in your heart. Lift up your spirit and encourage you. And that's exactly what they did for Joshua. And so now, re-energized and encouraged that God was with him, Joshua led Israel's army in the attack. And and verse 9 tells us that they marched all through the night, straight through the night to be able to surprise the enemy and and catch him off guard. And this was a great uh, tactic uh, of Joshua's. But again, as you read through chapter 10, the text makes it clear that it was God who was fighting this battle for Israel. Look at verses 10 and 11. And the Lord confounded them, them being the combined armies there of Adonai Zedek and and those guys. The Lord confounded them before Israel and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and he pursued them by way of the ascent of Beth Horon remember that, the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Mechadah, and they flew from before, fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Horon. The Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. All right, so these verses depict God as the warrior fighting on behalf of Israel. He was the one who confounded the Canaanite armies, causing them to go into a panic and flee before them. He chased them away from Gideon. He slew them with great hailstones from heaven. I mean, can you imagine how terrifying that would have to be? There's no protection from these missiles coming at you from out of the sky. As you uh, head south, from Gibeon towards Beth Haran, as the text says there, there's that, that ascent, the ascent of Beth Haran. And, and it's about a 10-mile, mostly gentle rise from Gibeon up to this crest. But then at Beth Haran, there's a sudden change and there's the descent on the other side. And the descent is an incredibly steep, rugged path. It, it, it's a place where it drops over 700 feet in less than two miles. And, and, um, 
It was so steep and rugged, they, they cut some uh, steps into the rock to make an ancient roadway down to, to make it a little bit easier to travel. But it was so steep, if you had a horse, you couldn't ride it down. You had to get off and dismount and lead, lead the horse down. And, and it was at this place, on that descent, where God hit them with the hailstone. No shelter, no quick fleeing, nowhere to run just a steep rocky hillside. And more died there than from Joshua's whole army. So what would it do for you today? In in this life right here now as a soldier of Jesus Christ, as you're engaged in the battle of living for Jesus in a world that is growing darker and more and more hostile towards biblical truth, what does it do for you to be reminded that God is a warrior fighting on your behalf? I mean, it seems pretty clear from the way Joshua wrote this that he wants us to understand that it is God who is the fighter. He is the warrior. He is the victor who crushes the enemy. Years later, King David would pick up on this same theme and to be an encouragement to the people of Israel, he wrote a question in Psalm 24, 8. Who is the king of glory? And the answer, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. We as the church cannot lose sight of the fact that God through Christ is a warrior who fights on behalf of his people. We know that Jesus Christ was meek and mild as he ministered on earth, but that does not mean he was weak and soft. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as a warrior on a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And then a few verses later, it continues the description by saying, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That doesn't sound weak and soft, does it? And when we're facing hardships, going through trials in this life when the enemy is assaulting our souls, when we're in the heat of of battle and and it's upon us and we're struggling to do what is right, as as, uh, Mr. Henningsen prayed, to, to do the harder right when the wrong seems easier. When we're in that battle and the world's scoffing at biblical truth, at that time, no mild mannered God or soft Jesus can give us real hope. You know, it's as we come to know that God is a warrior who fights on our behalf, who stands with us in the heat of the battle. That is when we can triumph in the muck and the mire of this life. See, the enemy is too strong for us. The current of this world that, you know, threatens to sweep us away is too powerful for us to stand in it on our own. We need the strength of someone even more powerful, a more powerful warrior on our side, and that is exactly the kind of God we have. Now, the fact that God was fighting for Israel did not mean that Joshua and his men could sit back in their easy chairs and do nothing. Just because God slew more with the hailstones than they slew with the sword didn't mean they could just put aside their swords. 
they were called to fulfill their responsibility. And so as such, Joshua and his army, you know, they were chasing the Canaanites as they were fleeing desperately, uh, these Canaanites trying to desperately get back to their fortified cities for some type of protection. So can you picture Joshua as he's coming up that ascent and he's just now cresting the, the top to, to look over the descent of Beth Horon and what he sees there? He sees God fighting for them uh, with these hailstones from the sky and decimating the enemy that way. And, and, and he realizes, oh, God is fighting for us. But he would also realize something else. He would have realized, boy, there's not enough daylight left for us to finish this job before these guys would reach their, their fortified cities. So Joshua prays a bold and what would appear to us to be a rather audacious prayer. And you know, he didn't do it in private. He didn't do it in secret. In front of all Israel, he prayed, look at verse 12, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon, in the valley of Aijalon. Now, you know, that's a rather bold prayer, isn't it? Hey, uh, God, would you, would you mind just making the sun stand still for a while here so we, so we have some extra time to, to clean up uh, uh, this, this mess here? But the reality is, he was praying according to God's will, right? Because God had said earlier that he was giving these kings and their armies into his hand. And so Joshua was just asking for time to do what God had commanded them to do and said would happen. And therefore, as he's praying according to God's will, God responds to him. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And by the way, nobody knows for sure what the book of Jashar is. It's mentioned a couple times in the Bible, but some record book that they had been keeping and, and most likely a book of songs or poems that had been written about all the, the military conquests and, and stuff like that because that's both contexts that we get it in. Just, just thought I'd mention that. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Now, as you can imagine, many critics of the Bible have said, well, this can't possibly be true. I mean, think about what it would take to make the sun stand still. Right? So either you have to take our entire solar system and cause it to shift so that the sun would stay at the same point as the earth is rotating, or you would have to stop the rotating of the earth. Now, in rough figures, we're traveling about a thousand miles an hour on the surface of the earth. You ever been in a car when someone hit the brakes real hard? I was uh, doing an errand uh, last summer, last spring maybe, and Mocha loves to drive in the, in, in, in the van with us, and so I was taking her with me and going down the hill by Nelson's Oil and Gas there, and, and somebody from, from uh, the uh, uh, 
storage sheds that are down there pulled right out in front of me. So I hit the brake. I had my seatbelt on, no problem. Mocha, she's just splashed up against the, the windshield. That was funny. I was laughing very hard. What would happen on the earth if God suddenly put the brakes on? How many other systems would that affect? I mean, you're talking about the entire cosmos here. And people can't wrap their mind around that physical difficulties of this problem. It seems impossible on so many different levels, so they dismiss it. They'll say that, well, Joshua was simply speaking in poetic terms here. You know, it was very common in in poems to use hyperbole to to exalt some great victory or anything like that. And he he was just speaking in, in poetic terms there. Or others would say that, you know, Israel was so encouraged when they came up there and they saw God fighting for them with the hailstones, they saw their their enemy being decimated there, that they just gained renewed strength and energy and they were able to accomplish in half a day what normally would take a whole day. So it just seemed like the day was longer to them. Or they would say, you know, Joshua wasn't actually asking for an extended day. That's a, a misinterpretation of what the text is saying there. The Hebrew word for stand and still can also mean or be translated as to cease or to quit. And at that time of year, uh, when this battle is taking place in that part of Israel, the average daily temperature is close to 110 degrees. And so uh, Joshua was was praying for the the intensity of the sun to cease and and, and, uh, to, to slow its function there. And God then answered that prayer through the clouds from the hailstorm and, and this type of thing. That's what they say. Although, of course, that you know, wouldn't answer why the, the moon had to stop in Aijalon in and that kind of stuff either. But, you know, there are lots and lots of arguments trying to get around what the Bible describes in these verses. But there is only one argument for it. And that argument is this. We have a great God who can do the impossible. This is a God who spoke and in six days created the entire cosmos and every system that is functioning within it. He established the laws of physics so he can change or suspend them if he wants and he can do it without ruining everything he created. This is the God who caused an iron axe head to float in water like a cork or who parted the waters of the Red Sea. This is the God who made a fish big enough to swallow Jonah and keep him alive for three days in its belly. This is the God who after three days raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incomprehensible that the sun could stand still for the length of almost a whole day. And I have no problem believing that God did exactly that. Because our God is so powerful and so mighty that He does the impossible and doesn't even have to think twice about it. When it came to the virgin birth, another impossibility by man's reckoning, the angel Gabriel summed up the assessment like this, for nothing 
will be impossible with God. So what about you? Are you facing something that's impossible? Do you look in front of you and you say, oh, there is no possible way I can do this. I can't handle this load. I can't accomplish this task. I can't deal with this emotional pain or this situation. And you know what? Maybe you can't. But isn't it good to know that we have a God who can? A warrior God fighting on your behalf who will fight for your marriage as you fight for it who will fight for your family for the child who has wandered off from the faith who will fight for your ability to be a faithful witness in a hostile workplace or world who will fight to help you overcome that pesky sin that just seems to keep tripping you up over and over again. And you say, oh, but it's impossible. I've tried so many times and so hard to get rid of that. Oh, but we have a God who does the impossible. Not just the impossible, but the crazy impossible, like stopping the sun. This is our God. So we can declare with the psalmist in Psalm 48, 14, for such is God, our God, forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, it is great to be reminded that you are a God who fights on our behalf. You don't send us out against the schemes of Satan hoping we can do the best that we can do. You stand in the battle with us. You fight for us. And because of that, we can have victory. So Father God, we pray that this morning we would be renewed and refreshed in heart, in soul, and spirit as we are reminded of who you are for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.